For the last 87-ish weeks, we have been in a series called Humankind, and that's a joke, it wasn't 87 weeks, but it was maybe a third of that. And uh, we've been specifically looking at the encounters of Jesus with other people. These stories where Jesus meets people and works in their life in a miraculous way. And one of the things we've discovered is that the same Jesus who encountered real flesh and blood human beings 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus who is working in your life and in my life today. Right? And we've been journeying through these stories of Jesus and learning about how he works in our lives. And, what, and, and as we continue now moving forward, what we're doing is in this next series, building on the foundation of the last 87 weeks and starting a new series about the kind of people that Jesus is cultivating. Because one of the temptations when we follow Jesus, especially in a culture like ours that is very individualistic, is to think that it's about me and my own personal relationship with Jesus. Which is true to a certain degree, but look around you, you are not alone. You are a part of something greater than just you and your personal faith. You are a part of a people And in the words of Jesus, a people of the kingdom of heaven. And that is precisely what this series is called. And each week we will be looking at a different sort of virtue or value of what it means to be a part of the people of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' primary message throughout the Gospels is this. The kingdom of heaven has come which is great news, especially if you have any idea what the heck he means by saying that. What is a kingdom? Well, it's a place, it's a people, it's an economy, it's a language, it's a way of life. And at the top of that kingdom is what? A king. Jesus. Jesus says that his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom on earth because it's not of earth. It's of heaven, which is God's realm, God's domain. And if you follow King Jesus, you know what that makes you? A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean? Well, here's what we're gonna cover in this series. We aim to answer the question, what does it look like to be people of the kingdom of heaven? And so we'll fill in this blank each week. What does it mean to be a people of? And this is how we will fill it in. To be a people of the kingdom of heaven, we live as a people of love in a time of such hatred. We live as a people of peace in a time of war. We live as a people of true power in a time when there is a parody of it that is used and abused. We live as a people of justice in a time of so much injustice. We live as a people of freedom in a time with mandates, restrictions, and war. And we live as a people of truth in a time of misinformation and propaganda. And with that, I think you can tell why it is timely we are having these conversations. Each week, we will zoom in and talk about how to be a people of love, peace, power, justice, freedom, and truth. But today we're gonna zoom way out, fly at like 30,000 feet, if that's even possible, I don't know, I'm not in aviation, but, and we're gonna look at what it means to be a people of the kingdom of heaven. So if you have a Bible, um, would you open it to Genesis chapter one? 
we are going way back to the beginning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the pew backs in front of you. Sticking with my aviation theme here. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, Or you can turn on the Bible app or Google it, but be careful with Google. You might get lost halfway through this talk. The hope is is to stay kind of zoomed out on the big picture of what does it mean to be the people of the kingdom of heaven. But towards the end, I'm going to land the plane and we're going to get practical and talk about how to work that out. But we're going to start in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is where we are. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So what is going on here? Well, within the realm of visible creation, God places a creature, humanity, capable because they are made in his image and likeness of acting as his agents in relationship to the other creatures and creation itself. Their job is thus to represent God's claim of kingship over his creation. Their job is to bring creation's then full potential into realization to the praise of their creator's glory. In other words, God creates humanity to be kings and queens. He creates us and then imbues within us the power, dominion, and authority over creation itself and says, steward creation wisely the way I would. Right, Move this story forward. The same creator God who made this whole world we live in out of nothing is then giving the raw materials of creation to humanity and say, take this story someplace for the flourishing of all who live in it. This is the introduction to humanity in the Bible. This is the very first thought God has about humans. The very first thing he wants you to know about deep in the human DNA, this is why we were created, to be a king, a queen, a ruler, a steward over all creation. Now, in the ancient Near East, the time when the book of Genesis would have been written, kings would set up statues of themselves at the borderlands of particularly their conquered regions. It was a sign of their authority. You would travel into these places and you would see a statue of the king in the image and likeness of a king, and you would know that this is the place where that king's rule and reign exists. The image of a king, many kings, leaders, people of power, consider themselves gods. Thus, these statues, in a way, were the image of a god. See, God uses a cultural expression of the time to share the greater purpose of humanity. In other words, he speaks the language of the culture and the context and the time they're living in so that they could thus understand their created purpose and ultimate destiny. But hear me on this. We are not lifeless, breathless statues. We are living, breathing creatures made in the image of a true king of heaven, 
The only ex- way we exist is the very breath of the divine himself turns dust into a living creature and then created to show the world what God is like. Made to steward creation, made to rule over it as God himself would rule over it and take it to reach its full potential for the flourishing of everyone and everything in it. This is the introduction of humans in the Bible and it is so important we understand this especially if you're new to your faith or if you're young, because there is this temptation to think that God is somehow some cosmic killjoy, right? That he is somehow boring or controlling or manipulative or something so much worse. But the actual picture we have of God is one who gives away his power, his authority, his dominion over the world, and then he entrusts it to us and creates a world full of joy and pleasure. Hello, be fruitful and multiply was his idea, not mine, for us to inhabit. See, this must become the lens that you read your Bible through. If it isn't, you're going to be very confused about who he says he is versus what you read, especially the hard parts. This is where the story begins for a purpose. He creates a world also that is full of goodness. I want you to imagine, even if you could just close your eyes and use your imagination for just a second, imagine a world where there are zero dollars annually spent on weapons of war. No energy directed towards creating weapons of destruction or ways to prevent someone from using violence against you because there is no need. No one had to be employed to defend one another from violence. No one had to be employed to prosecute someone for injustice or to defend someone who was unjustly incarcerated. No offense, lawyers, we love you, but there was no need. You don't have to build entire sectors of the economy around preventing and treating disease because there was none. No refugees of war because there was no war. No hunger crisis, no clean water crisis, no poverty, and I know you can imagine this, no COVID. No corrupt politics. Now this is where your imagination comes into play. What could humans do? What kind of world would this be if we didn't have to deal with that kind of brokenness and corruption. But imagine a world also where there's not just corruption out there that is gone, but there is corruption inside of me, within, that is also gone. And you know what I'm talking about. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there is brokenness inside of us. So imagine a world with no relational brokenness, no depression, no sadness, no heartbreak. Imagine that that brokenness inside of us and our own relationships is not existent. And please don't tell me that world would be boring. (laughs) I don't think we need the converse of good just to appreciate it, right? I think that's a reality of our fallen and broken world. I believe that there can be good experienced for goodness sake without the need of bad for contrast. And this is the good world that God made. This is his project. And get me on this because this is important. This was his original intention for us. But what happened? (laughs) 
Because when we look around the world today, it doesn't feel like anything that I described is a reality because it's not a reality. In between services, I got a notification, news headline, the world is dangerously short on birds. I was like, I don't even know what that means, but it's more bad news, right? It seems like it's a constant bombardment that it is broken, it is off, it is not working the way that it should have. What happened? Well, the Bible tells us that sin happened. In theology, we call this the fall. And sin is the corruption of God's good world. And humanity's original sin, the original corruption inside of human family, is rebelling against what God created as good, his created purpose. And the ramifications of that decision was disastrous. This story is found in a beautiful story and poetic, and it's ancient, but it's in Genesis chapter 3. And instead of reading it to you, I'm going to summarize it to you. God creates this world for humanity to inhabit And he invites them into a loving, trusting relationship with God, walking with him in the cool of the day and being employed in all of the ways that I shared with you earlier. I mean, Adam's first job was to name all the animals. Sounds pretty awesome to me, right? This was the world God invites Adam and Eve, the first humans to live in. But at the center of Eden, at the center of what is called the Garden of Delight or paradise of this world that God created was a tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, this could be symbolic of something. It's poetry that we're reading. It could actually be a physical tree. I don't know. But the point is that the tree teaches us something. At the center of God's created world was the ability to choose to choose whether or not to love and trust God, follow him into his created good, or to make a decision that we would, as human beings, define what is truly good and evil on our own terms. And this is what happens, is humanity chooses not to turn towards God, but to turn their backs away from him. And we can see that in our day and age, today, we have the exact same temptation, which is to define what is good and evil on my terms. But the problem with that is, is what if I define what is good and evil, and my good is Steve's evil, right? It breaks down really quickly because we can't share a definition without a source. God is saying he is the true source of what is good. And what he defines as evil is the true source of what is evil. But again, humanity chooses not to follow him. Now, this seems like an easy choice. The world I described to you or the world we live in, right? Which one would you choose? It seems like an easy choice, but you recognize the same temptation that befell them falls on top of us. This drive and desire to be God, to be the ultimate source of truth in our own lives leads us down a destructive path. It led them down one, it leads us down one too. The instant results of this story were shame, blame, and a broken world that would spiral further and further down into death and chaos. The introduction of sin would sort of introduce a thread. If the world was a tapestry, if our souls were a tapestry, this thread of sin that is interwoven between all of the tapestry, and it's like we cannot get it out anymore. It's like the weeds in my backyard mixed with my grass. It's a pain. If I pull up the weed, the grass comes up too. Like this is the reality now of how broken things are. It resembles what it was supposed to be But it isn't that. All that is left of the former good of this world are hints, 
whispers and some little small part inside of each of us longing to return to a home that we have never been to, seen, or experienced. But still, there is something inside of us, if we're honest, that says the world is not the way that it should be. But all we have is like a glimpse. It's almost like we're catching it out of the corner of our eye of what it could be if somehow it could be put back together again. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. But the problem is, despite our best efforts, we cannot put it back together again. We recognize the problem, we see what it could be if it got put back together again, but we're helpless to actually fix it at its root issue. More on that in a minute. What's God's response to human rebellion? Well, the first thing he does is tell them, here's the world, the mess that you created. The second thing he does is something that I think is kind of unexpected. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God's response to human rebellion is to provide a sacrifice to cover them. The first thing to die is not a human but an innocent animal. And that death then becomes a covering or a protection for them. In other words, God chooses to work through the brokenness of this world for the good of humanity. But it costs the life of someone or something innocent to cover their sin. And he still does that today. And that's not all. The Lord God said, the man, verse 22, has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, to take also from the tree and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, what is going on here? Um, good question. There's a lot going on here, but I want you to notice this. Death is supposed to be something foreign to humans. There's a reason why death doesn't feel right. I recently lost a friend. He was too young. He died too soon. He loved Jesus, and I know where he is, and I know he's okay, but still... It doesn't feel right. And that's because it shouldn't. That's because God did not design us to die. And these strange few verses is about God not wanting us to stay the way we are forever. <laughs> not wanting them to reach out to the very thing that should have sustained them for all eternity is not because he is bad. It's the exact opposite. It is because to stay in this broken state for all eternity is not good. He wants us to go back to the way he made us. He wants to protect us from ourselves, put boundaries and limits on them so that they can find their way back home to him. He wants us to go back to Genesis 1. He wants to reinstate our kingship, to reinstate our identity, to bring us back to the kingdom that we belong to, to our purpose, to our people, and ultimately to our king. But we cannot do that on our own. 
This is the story of the rest of the Bible, and it is our story too. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, we begin to read God's plan to bring us back, to rescue us from, and to invite us into a better future. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God introduces his antidote to the curse brought into the world by sin. And it is a male descendant from the woman Eve. In other words, someone one day would arise from this broken human family that would destroy evil within us and among us once and for all. But here's the conundrum. We've already covered that humans can't do this by ourselves, and yet the promises from humanity, a human will arise and save humanity. How is God going to work this out? He does so over time. But the first thing he does is begin to rebuild the human family. Among all the brokenness and chaos, there are still some who long to follow the God who made them. They still seek God's healing in the world, and we begin to be introduced to those people throughout the book of Genesis. In chapter 12, we're introduced to Abram and Sarai. It says this in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This people that God is reshaping amongst all of the human family, their very existence is to be a blessing to the world around them. Do you know what all peoples on the earth literally means? All peoples of the earth. (laughs) That's what it literally means. Everyone. We follow this human family for the next few books of the Bible and what starts from a barren husband and wife. Within a few hundred years, they become a nation of people numbering in the millions. We know them as Israel. But they live in the real world. They live amongst the same brokenness that we do, and they are imperfect, and they do not always live up to the calling that God has given them. In fact, most of the time, they don't. But God, God made a promise that he would work through the brokenness of humanity for their greater good, even when they suck. Fast forward to the story of Exodus 19. We meet this family after being rescued from slavery in Egypt, invited into the promised land, receiving the word from God as they're about to step into their destiny and purpose. Says this in Exodus 19, verse five. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, hear me on this, you will be for me a what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You were thinking, where is this guy going? Now you know. (laughs) Do you see what is happening here? God is restoring the created purpose and identity of humanity. 
and he is starting with his family, but they are not to exist exclusively. Kingdom of priests. Do you know what a priest's job is? It's to represent who God is to the world around them. But notice this. This is not just reserved for the select few. It's for everybody. (laughs) The whole millions of people in the kingdom of Israel are what? A kingdom of priests. Their job, their identity as a people is to represent who God is to the world around them. This is the identity of everyone in the kingdom. They are all supposed to represent who God is to the nation around them. This sounds an awful lot like image bearers from Genesis chapter 1. And here's what is interesting. God is restoring humanity through humanity, yet without God intervening on our behalf, we would never be able to accomplish this. And this is the tragic story of Israel. While called and empowered, they flop over and over and over again. And this is my tragic story too. Even in my best attempts to do what is right, I make mistakes all the time. And sometimes I can see what's wrong, but I can't fix it. Is anyone with me? Thursday night after our first service, we went out with some friends and I probably should have just gone home and gone to bed because I was tired and cranky and that usually is what happens. When you're tired, you get cranky, right? And uh, we were out with some friends and I made a joke. And I made a joke about my friend and it was at his expense. And I was thinking about that the, thing, the joke I made is sarcasm, and it could have been thought of as just like a, a quick moment flash in the pan, but I kept thinking the joke I made is not reflective of how I feel about my friend. It's not reflective of what I even think is true about him. And why did I do it? For some cheap laughs because I was tired or insecure or you fill in the blank, whatever the reason is. But what I realized is, is that my intention to show the room how much I care about my friend was met with the reality that I made fun of him in front of everybody. And he's way more godly than me, and it was like water off his back, but it's, we're fine. That's why I'm telling you the story. But my point is, is that even in the best attempts to do what is right, I find myself unable to fix the thing that is broken in me. And all I can do, like we prayed earlier, is in humility hear from the Lord and his conviction in my heart and recognize where I was coming from and ask for forgiveness and grace. And that is what makes me look more and more like Jesus. But again, he is the reason why I'm changing, not me. Because we cannot go back to the garden. Only he can restore us. Moving for our good. So, God must make a way. Spoiler alert, if you haven't already figured it out, the way is Jesus. (laughs) And the human descendant serpent head crusher, which sounds like a WWE wrestler title, right? From Genesis 3.15, Jesus. God becoming human to provide a way that humanity couldn't make on our own, Jesus. In Luke's gospel, he does something that's brilliant. He traces Jesus' lineage from Adam and Eve all the way to Mary and Joseph. And when he does that, he makes a point that Jesus is what we could never be. He embodies all of God's goodness because, well, he is God. And yet he embodies all of what it means to be human because he is not broken by sin. 
As such, he gets to live into the original creation mandate, a true image of God. The New Testament authors would say, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. He is the perfect image of God. And he is the true Israel, the embodiment of the kingdom of priests and the holy nation. He fulfills that calling entirely to the world around him. Furthermore, he is the covering of humanity's sin. Remember in Genesis, the sinless sacrifice that became a covering for humanity? That is Jesus. And he is also the way to the tree of life. Shoot, he is the tree of life. (laughs) Because of his death, the cycle of sin and death, and the evil that humanity could not get out of, that cycle is broken. He reversed it. He came back from the dead, and doing so, he dealt the death blow to death. He emptied it of its power, and he is not just the way to eternal life. He is eternal life. John's gospel, he sums it up this way, and I know you know this verse if you've been around at any point in time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not stand Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name, the name of God's one and only Son. I hope this passage, one that many of you know, takes on a new meaning for you today. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to live out of the love of God. But the big story of God is that He is rescuing you. And that act of rescuing. It begins with the process of restoring you to the way he intended. So it took me 30 minutes. But what does it mean to be a people of the kingdom of heaven? It means you are restored, redeemed, and being made new. If once in the garden you were an angled mirror reflecting who God is to the world, sin is like taking a rock and throwing it through the mirror, shattering it into pieces. But the work of Jesus is not to come with a broom and a dustpan to sweep up the shattered parts of your soul and throw it in the garbage. The work of Jesus is to pick those pieces back up, fuse them back together again, put you back the way God intended you to be so that you could once again be a reflection of who God is to the world around you. But this time when people look into that mirror, you know who they see? They see Jesus. Because that is what the world needs. They need you to reflect who Jesus is to the world around them. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. What he's saying is those of us who can see the reality of what I just presented to you, we are being transformed into the image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, as a citizen of the kingdom, we are becoming more and more like its king, Jesus, every day. Hallelujah, right? Now, how do we live all of this out? How do I land the plane? Well, in the weeks to come, we'll get more specific about how this all fleshes out. But for the sake of today, how do we live differently as a result of this reality? Couple thoughts, three thoughts, and then we'll be done. Number one, this is not a solo sport, right? This is not about you and your personal individual relationship with Jesus. He has saved you into a people, into a kingdom. This is not about you being isolated. This is a team sport, 
not a solo sport. Peter, who is one of the closest disciples to Jesus, says this in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen people, hear me on this, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have become a part of the very people of God. Which is why we do things like Youth for the City and Kids Camp and Alpha and baptisms and why we gather here on Sunday. Because you are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You get to be involved in God's plan to rescue the world. And in doing so, it's stepping into your created purpose and your destiny to rule and reign. This is where the story is going. Read the book of Revelation. A city comes out of heaven, the new Jerusalem among man. God is reinstating his kingdom on earth and you can be a part of it now. That is what the good news of Jesus is, which means two other things. This is not a we're in and you're out, nan and a poo poo kind of thing. Sorry, I spent a lot of time with little kids. <laughs> the purpose of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to be a blessing to the world around us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, you're an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. That is your job description. So we all have to take a step back and ask the question, does our life look like it? Do your posts Does your IG look like it? Does your TikTok look like it? Do your emails? Does your conversations? If you're a business owner, does your team, does your workplace, do your taxes? Do do you hear what I'm saying? Is every facet of your life or your attempt to recognize that you're an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven and therefore how you live matters. What you do matters. Your habits, your thoughts towards others, they matter. But if you're hearing me going, well, how do I know? Like, how do I know if I am being an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven? Well, Paul says you have a message in a ministry, and this is how you know. Is your message that, to the world around you that you can be reconciled to God through Christ? Are you speaking words of reconciliation to a divided and broken world? Are you inviting people to the greatest story of reconciliation, God to humans? And that's what our ministry is. The word literally means our service to the world is to help other people live into that reality. You can be reconciled to God and you don't have to live in division and brokenness in the world. You can be reconciled to one another. That's how you know if you're an ambassador to the king. Does your life preach the message and is your life the ministry of reconciliation? And last, your citizenship is in heaven, which means you are a foreigner and a stranger on earth. I don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but they're brilliant. It says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared 
a city for them? Does it sometimes feel like you don't know where you belong? <laughs> like there isn't a party affiliation you can rock with. Like there's an issue and you don't feel like you go on this side or on this side and you feel like you're somewhere in between. Welcome to the family. You should not feel like you belong because your citizenship is in heaven. Where's your tribe? You're amongst us, right? There's a reality in this world that as a follower of Jesus, the ways of this world should feel abnormal to a citizen of heaven, and that is okay. However, what is not okay is to give in to the temptation that that means you can just escape it. It's all gonna burn anyway, so I'm gonna throw my garbage out the window, right? It's all gonna burn anyway, so I don't really need to engage with the people around me. I'm just gonna hunker down and hide and wait for it to all go away. Jesus said a citizen of heaven exists to help the world flourish. To be a city on a hill, light and darkness, and salt to the world. Listen on this. If God did not send Jesus in the world to condemn the world, he didn't send you into the world to condemn it either. <laughs> so then... How do I lean into the mess? Well, I'm glad you asked. Tune in in weeks to come for more. <laughs> but seriously, the long and short answer is this. It's Jesus. Walk with your king, be renewed by his love, and show the world around you his goodness. I'm gonna pray a blessing over you. It's called the benediction. It also means that I'm done. So if you would, stand with me and just simply open your hands as a posture of receiving. I'll pray over you. In the coming seconds, minutes, hours, days, years, for the rest of our lives, may you be a people of the kingdom of heaven, a people of love, a people of peace, a people of power, a people of justice, of freedom, and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> Well, hey, super glad you're here. Uh, there's some elders here with orange lanyards. They would love to pray with you if you need prayer for anything. Go enjoy the sun. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.